Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 23 of the podcast, the topic is digital manufacturing with CAD-CAM in the cloud. Our guest is John Hershtick, head of SaaS, Onshape, and Atlas platform at PTC. In this conversation, we talk about the story of SolidWorks, using agile methods, listening to the market, charting the evolution of CAD into SaaS, and its emerging and future iterations in the open source cloud and beyond. Augmented is a podcast for industry leaders and operators, hosted by futurist Trond Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG.works, the industrial upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Industrial conversations that matter. John, how are you today? Great, Tron. Pleasure to be here. So I'm so excited because we're going to go on this very ambitious journey, hopefully, from past, present to future. And, you know, there's none better than, than you to describe it. And in our pre-call, John, we, we were talking about this and it really is a, deser- a story that deserves to be heard. And I think a story that 10 years from now will be told and retold, because I do believe that you have been onto something that others have been a little slower, you know, getting at. Um, and I wanted you, John, to ex- explain how it is that you got so deep into digital, but also manufacturing, because not everybody who goes to MIT and majors in mechanical engineering then goes straight into manufacturing. Give us a little bit of your sort of early, early days. I, I know that one of the fun stories is the MIT blackjack team. Yeah. Um, oh, there are other stories. Well, um, I uh, I grew up in Chicago. I was born in 1962. I'm going to come back to that later in the story because that was a big year for CAD. Not that I was born. There was another big event that year. And I grew up in Chicago, and in, uh, I was very interested in electronics, and that led me to start programming computers in 1975. By the way, a little, little trivia sidebar. I learned to program a computer in the same building, the high school, where they filmed the movie The Breakfast Club. If you've seen that movie, that high school, that's where I learned to program a computer. I taught myself. There were no classes. There was a terminal in the corner. 110 baud. So 110. And in that same building, it's also where I took another course at the same time in drafting, paper-based drafting. And the two seemed to have nothing to do with each other. I got placed into that through an aptitude test. So 1975, I learned paper-based drafting. I learned computer programming. I go to college thinking I'm going to major in computer science, but I change. My uncle convinces me to move into mechanical engineering and product design, which looked much more interesting. So I go to get an internship. And, and, and it reminded me of my drafting background, you know. And Anyway, I go to get an internship in college in 1981, 40 years ago this month, And uh, they placed me at Computer Vision, a CAD company. They say, oh, you're a mechanical engineer. You know how to program computers. And I I have to say that that I've worked 
40 years now in the same business, the same, not the same company, but the same industry building software tools for product development and that are used to design and manufacture products. I've been in several companies and I view today, I'm 40 years into it. um, uh, Probably what I'm best known for is founding and leading SolidWorks for many years. I was the lead founder and then longtime CEO. I spent 18 years there. But today, I'm at PTC with Onshape, and people say to me, Tron, they'll say, uh, hey, you've been at it a long time. What was it like in the early days or when you were just getting started? And I always answer the same. I say, today, now, these are still the early days, and we're still getting started. And that's true for me in my career. It's true for the CAD industry, and it's true for the digital transformation of manufacturing in general, that we're only about half done, if that with the power of what we could really do for product developers, for manufacturers in the world. And so it's it's still an exciting time to be here. And my work is far from done. It's so interesting you say that because the timelines of technology and of industry uh, sometimes seem to clash. And, And maybe because there's this impression, this popular impression, I guess, that technology somehow moves at the speed of light. And usually people will say, well, you know, industry is slower and, you know, like society, you know, is, is even slower to catch on. But I mean, you have seen a bunch of different technologies throughout these 40 years. What is your best explanation for this impression people have that technology somehow moves really rapidly when if I look at the manufacturing industry it's sort of like the opposite. But on the other hand, when technology does get introduced, it, it, it obviously, uh, and you do it the right way, it has massive, massive consequences. What, what, what is your sort of general one-liner on, on that? And, you know, we are going to go into the details here, but it's just an interesting thing. And then lastly, right, people these days vastly underestimate manufacturing, right? The whole U.S. actually sort of have, you know, they left it behind. And yeah. that, again, is really mysterious. So I'd say the answer is, if I use the language of CAD and design, I would say the answer is most people lack the ability to form a good perspective view okay, on t- over time and change. So you tend to remember things that are happening in the present or a big change that you saw, and you don't remember a lot of other things. And people have very poor senses of timescale you know, and, and perspective. So um, anyway, and, and I have seen changes happen that seem, a lot of changes also seem really um, unimaginable when you're looking at them going forward and looking at them in the rearview mirror after they happen, they're the most obvious thing in the world, you know? <laughs> and so, so those things, right. you know, so it's very hard for people. Also, it's hard for people to relate to the different speed at which, computing and digital technology evolves relative to physical technology that you see like it like you know like if if um if cars had gotten faster at the rate that computers have since i started programming in 1975 you know cars go about the same speed that they did then but computers go whatever a thousand times faster you know you'd have cars going 50,000 miles an hour you know it doesn't happen or a car would cost 10 cents 
if if they the pricing had changed the way computers do. So people, a lot of people just can't grasp that and relate to it. And change happens when it happens. It, it doesn't happen be, on the schedule of the entrepreneur. It happens right. because there's a a, a a combination like like a storm of certain conditions come together and it's like magic and then boom it happens. Um, well, so we'll we'll get through that in these forty years because there is indeed, it seems to me, uh, there are these moments where things really do change, even with physical systems. So and, and yeah. we'll get to that in oh, when can we I, talk about can the I future. Add one more well. one more point. To borrow yeah. from Mark Andreessen, one of the investors in um, Onshape uh, from Andreessen Horowitz, he said, and I might not get the details right, he said, I arrived in Silicon Valley in, I think it was 2000, and I felt I had come too late and missed everything. So people always think some generation of tech is kind of done until it gets dramatically expanded. Like people thought, um, you know, people thought computers were very widely used in the 1970s and 80s. And then when the PC came along, people thought, oh, wow, now computers are really widely used, you know. But then the phone came along <laughs> and made computers look like specialty devices, you know. And so it's like everything's, everything's kind of relative. You know, there's been several generations where computers felt they were made widely available. And that's because, again, it was made widely available compared to what came before. Not what came going forward. You know. It's funny you you mention this because you know as you know I spend a lot of my my time thinking about these things, but sometimes you're a little sad because you know you you meet people who say you know what are you trying to tell me? What do you have to tell me? I have an iPhone. Uh, you can't teach me anything, right? So at, you know at any given moment there's a technology where people think this is the pinnacle of technology. Anyways, uh, John, let's take take us back to the beginning of CAD because sure. You know, computer assisted design, it has changed so much. What was it when you essentially um, embraced the the embryos of what it has become? And, you know, let's use that as a lens over these last 40 years. So, what was it when you started engaging with so, it? And, and what is it that um, you shaped it into? So, when I started, and by the way, um, so I came along in 81 to computer vision. If I just go back for just a moment and say in 62, Ivan Sutherland wrote a thesis called Sketchpad at MIT, his PhD thesis online. You can find it if you Google it. By the way, if you go to YouTube, you can see videos from the 1960s of Sutherland's demo. He's not the guy giving the demo. It's not Sutherland, but it's the system he wrote. There seems to be some confusion about that. But you'll find him. There's these really cool black and white videos. So 1962, the year I was born, Sutherland's writing his PhD at MIT, and you want to talk about a visionary, uh, Tron. He was a total visionary. It was not only the first CAD system, it was probably the first gra computer graphics system, object-oriented programming, interactive use of computers. So that's 62. By 1981, when I come into the picture, you have these companies, you have two kinds of CAD out there. In-house developed systems like General Motors had developed um, a system, Ford, um, Boeing. I believe they had developed their own internal CAD systems running on mainframe computers. And then you had these companies building CAD systems, most notably Computer Vision and Applicon. And they were making um, mini computer-based systems. Now, when I say mini, remember, perspective view, all things are relative. This was still the size of several sub-zero refrigerators, okay, and went into a special room typically and had maybe three terminals connected to it. 
um, uh, with probably one one thousandth of the computing that's in my watch today. Okay, no kidding. You know, you're talking about machines with maybe I don't know sixty four k of memory, maybe. Okay. Anyway, the company sold the computer system and the software and the furniture. You'd get the chair and the table and everything. That's the computer vision I walked into, and so that was the nature of the computing. Now, the nature of the application software was uh, using either doing computer aided drafting, meaning taking what I learned in high school to do pencil on paper and doing that on the computer screen. If you can computer aided drafting in two D or three D modeling, but you might think of it as three D modeling with the digital analog of coat hanger wire. It's called wireframe modeling. So if you want to make an object, you'd make it the way, you ever seen a sculptor work? There's some famous sculptor, um, I forget who it was, who, who worked with wire and they made like shapes that looked like things. That's what we were doing in 3D in that day. And there was a twinkle in the eye to do what was called solid modeling or real, real 3D modeling, but it didn't really work very well. So those were the systems we were selling. They were slow, they were crazy hard to use. Day one on the job in 81, I'm a college student, it's summer. Day one on the job, they show me how to use the system and I can't figure it out. And I end up, you know, I'm not used to getting up early in the morning. I had lunch, I fall asleep. I'm like, this is so boring. I picked the wrong industry. Good thing it's only for the summer. And yet here I am 40 years later. But the systems were hard to use, big. Does that most listeners won't really relate to an era where a computer looked like that? You know, you have to have been of a certain vintage to have ever seen one, let alone used one the way I did in the in the so that's my world of CAD in 81. Quarter million dollars for the system, big mini computer wireframe and 2D drafting. Those were interesting days. I actually, uh, I'm old enough to have worked on this Univac system. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was helping yeah. my dad with some stuff, uh, doing some quantitative modeling, and oh, I was wow. just mostly uh, just picking up punch cards and delivering punch cards to... Oh, punch cards. Hey, I have some. lady, have yeah. <laughs> to right some, here. here. You, you go. got them. Some punch cards. Oh, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Amazing experience, right? Because, I mean, those days... Hardware was really hardware. I mean, there was a oh, yeah. room dedicated to this uh, this machine. So it, it is interesting how what we now think of as like a, a software-driven sort of uh, reality around uh, um, computing, you know, has has a very uh, physical footprint and started certainly with a very physical footprint. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It started, in fact, I believe... At that time, there was still a lot of a feeling that customers were buying the hardware and the software was thrown in. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, so then, John, what what happened? Did you immediately, as you were sitting there uh, at MIT, I guess between seventy nine and eighty six, you were a CAD lab manager? What went through your head? You you were thinking this is inefficient. Uh, I'm going to either leave or change this uh, <laughs> product. Well, I was lab man. I was a student first, and then I was the intern, and then I was lab manager under Professor David Gossard at MIT, who was doing research into the future of CAD. And Gossard, I was lucky, you know, you get lucky in life. And Gossard was my mentor and teacher, and he was another true visionary. He like took over the mantle, you know, from Sutherland and said, "This is what." And there were others who worked alongside Gossard, Dave Anderson at Purdue, the people in the UK. 
um, Robin Hilliard, Ian Braid. There were a lot of people doing research in CAD, but Gossard had this vision of the future. And he would bring people to the lab where we had a mini computer and the big terminal set up and everything. He'd say, I'm building this whole lab to model what every engineer will have on their desktop in the future. Now, this is before the IBM PC or the, the Mac. The Apple II was around, but people would be like, what? <laughs> You're kidding me. And he'd say, every engineer is going to have it. So what a visionary. I was lucky to be around. He also said, it's not going to use these weird type commands. It's going to use a mouse and you know the, the work on graphical user interface. So he did research, and he said on solid modeling on varying shapes by, by changing dimensions, which is one of the key technologies. You get so-called parametric or variational design. So I was in that research lab. I actually wrote my thesis on AI using an expert system to identify problems, manufacturing problems in shapes. Um, that's another story. On a Lisp machine if you know what that is. So, so Gossard, I'm in this Gossard lab and I'm full of visions for the future and I know what the reality of the CAD system world is like from working at, at computer vision and so forth. And I'm like, and I just wanted to start a company. So off we went and we started our first company based on an idea that we had researched at the CAD lab. That was 87. Right. So, so that's 87. And then what happens? Things started spiraling from, from there. When was well, it that, that, that CAD started to morph into a more, uh, I guess, industrially useful tool that, that started to get deployed and, and used, you know, in, in, in producing okay. industrial products? So, so it was used again. Some people would argue it was used in the sixties and used in the seventies, but, you know, it's a question as to what degree, you know, and, and, and how. So some notable events were, so I would say until the 80s, it was used only by elite corporations and only in fairly narrow use cases, okay? A couple things happened around the time I'm starting my first company in the 80s. Let's just look at the decade of the 80s. Um, uh, so Autodesk was founded, on the West Coast in California, and they build a 2D drafting system called AutoCAD for the IBM PC that had just come out. That catches on like crazy, okay, for drafting, all right? And that brings CAD to an order of magnitude more people, 2D CAD. The other thing that happens is PTC, where I work now, by the way, coincidentally, I just happen to be wearing this PTC sweater. I didn't either wear it for, I wear it a lot because I'm comfy, but anyway, um, PTC is founded in the 80s also, and PTC is the first company to take the concept of a 3D solid model, the idea that instead of modeling with coat hanger, you're now modeling essentially like with clay, all right, like with real material, digitally, the digital analog of clay or metal, where you really have, when you model an object, you really capture all its physical properties, Okay. PTC is the first company to break through and make a system like that that really works well. And they do this in the 80s. And they're another rocket ride company. Industry adopts it. It's based on Unix workstations, Sun Microsystems, Silicon Graphics. No one, no one really knows about these things anymore. They're gone. Unix workstations. So that also happens in the 80s. My company that I founded didn't do all that well, called Premise. Um, we were building a Sketcher. We were on Microsoft Windows. Well, we were too early on Windows, had the right idea, but 
1989, not a lot of people were using Windows compared to today. And so, so by 1989, you were a, actually a somewhat, if I may say, unsuccessful entrepreneur. Yeah. And there were two uh, sort of stellar companies out there, Autodesk yeah. and PTC. Was yeah. there, was there anything companies. else going on? I mean, comparatively, were there other companies that we should remember? Well, uh, What else yeah. is there to say about the 80s before well, we move to the fantastic 90s story? Oh, the 80s in CAD, I could go on and on, Trond. There were a zillion companies I could tell you about. Um, I'm giving Why you the did highlight reel. Well, because most startups fail, you know, and most companies, uh, people think their company's going to last forever. Most of them don't, especially in tech. They get eclipsed by the next generation. You know, they say, and sometimes in the world, they say, people say, oh, there's, there's always a bigger fish. Like there's always, you know, like, like you think you're a big fish and some bigger fish comes along. Well, in the world of tech, I, I have the opposite saying, I say, there's always a smaller fish. <laughs> like you think you're a big fish and then someone comes along and some small company changes the rules. Anyway, there are a lot of other companies. When I talk about um, Autodesk, there were 10 other companies that did PTC CAD, a PC based CAD, CAD key, VersaCAD. If you gave me some time, I'd remember them. Um, uh, many other companies, but Autodesk rose above them. When you look at PTC, there were many other important CAD companies I'm leaving out of the story. Dasso System was founded then, and they're a huge, they're a huge company today and very successful. And they had this product called Katia. They had CADAM that they acquired. Katia was a 3D modeling. They would say the first 3D modeler for surfaces, for aircraft. There was a company called SDRC um, out of Ohio, very successful company. Unigraphics, still around today as part of Siemens, a very important company. And on and on and on I could go. Um, um, Control Data was in the business. There was a company called Calma, bought by GE. There's just too many to mention here. You know, but, but I'm, I'm curious. You the is there, there, is there, John, a way to explain? And this is uh, hitting a little close to home. You work at P, uh, PDC, but yeah. you know, is there any way you can explain why Autodesk and PDC were the survivors of the '80s? Like, what is it they did, either in the '80s or sort of rescuing the pieces in the '90s, that made sure that they are still around here today? It's just interesting. Well. You know, it's the usual question of why does one company succeed? Why did Apple succeed with PCs and there were a hundred other PC companies? I remember those years. Why why Apple and not Osborne or something? I think it's a little bit of a combination of really it's about to use modern language, product market, go-to-market fit, and then executional excellence. So product market fit is one thing, but you need go-to-market fit too. You need a way to get it to market. And so where Autodesk kind of hit the nail on the head is they they had a product that they they made to work well enough for drawings. And the market of people who made drawings was ready. And then the go-to-market of selling through dealers and affiliates and bundling it with the PC it just kind of came together and worked in this magic formula, so to speak. And PTC, now PTC in their case had a much more distinctive product. I mean, you could argue that AutoCAD's product, there were 10 others equivalent that made drawings just as well, really. They just kind of out, you know, out. They, the other ones didn't have the go-to-market fit. PTC had really for a long time the only solid modeler that really worked. So they would just go in and say, okay, you're looking at three other systems, try making the parts you design in each of them. And 
you know, the other systems would crash or wouldn't give geometry and PTCs would. So PTC had this unique product, but they also had a great pricing model, a great go-to-market model, a great platform on the Unix workstations. It all fit and they went, and then both companies executed at scale. Both companies did what a lot of startups fail, even those that have good product market, go-to-market fit, they don't execute. They don't turn into execution machines. And those two did. So, you know, it's kind of like making a hit movie sometimes. It's hard to say exactly why. If we knew why, if if anyone really knew why, they would go and well, do it over exactly. and over. They again. would go and do it. You know? They would go and do and it. And even the greatest entrepreneurs, you know, have you know, Steve Jobs, you know, he built Apple. He also built Next, you know, which wasn't the big success he wanted to be. So then, John, we, we are on to the next, not only the next decade, but for you, the next two decades. Mm. And this, again, is like, I think, fairly unique, right? Because if you were talking about sort of two decades as a chunk, but we are now talking about the 90s and the 2000s, yeah, which was your SolidWorks years. I wanted to yeah. give us a sense of what were those... 20 years like what okay. happened i mean the whole thing exploded and you were incinerating it yeah we were in the right place right time so what's interesting is in if you go to the just to finish that 80s 90s transition the early 90s when 1990 arrives it finds me selling my first company back to computer vision autodesk is growing like crazy ptc is disrupting the crap out of computer vision Okay, they're, 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 and I'm at Computer Vision, so I'm in the receiving end of PTC winning all the business and taking our business away. And I'm at Computer Vision, and I see this happening, and I've always was, I was still interested in Windows because I'd started that first company with Windows. And interestingly, when I, I started thinking about doing something new, I didn't like being at Computer Vision so much. I mean, there were some good things, but I wanted to leave, and so... I decide to leave, and at first I say to myself and my one of my co-founders, I say, "Look, um, let's." One thing I learned is let's get out of this CAD business because it's too hard, and let's never build a software product from scratch again. <laughs> well, a year later, I find myself I can't get away from the CAD market. I can't get away from <laughs> building software from scratch. And what happens is I see the customers that we lost to Computer Vision. I go meet PTC customers, and they're really happy with what PTC can do. And I see PTC's 3D modeling, but I think, you know, that's a great way to model, but um, it's too expensive, too hard to use. And I see what's happening with the Windows PC, which I've been watching now for many years, you know, uh, I don't know, five to 10 years at that point. And I say, you know, and I see what, I know that on the drawing board, you know, under NDA and stuff, I know about Windows 32, Windows NT, is coming along then. It may have been public, but Windows NT was the 32-bit version. Um, if you don't know what that, if you don't, if people don't know the difference between virtual memory and not virtual memory, they'd be shocked to learn how primitive old operating systems are. I'm not going to get into it. Anyway, there's this new 32-bit, more capable version of Windows coming along. So I'm, I'm running around at computer vision saying, oh, the PC and 32-bit Windows. And people are like, no one uses that for CAD. It's not powerful enough. It's not secure. Our customers don't want it. Why are you spending time on it? And uh, anyway, I ended up leaving Computer Vision and I say, look, in the future, it will have PTC's capability, but it will be delivered like Microsoft Word on a PC and it'll use Windows. And it'll, you know, have file, new, open, save, save as. 
That's the insight. And we'll use Autodesk's business model. So people say, hey, you're a big visionary. I, I felt it was the most freaking obvious thing in the world. Well, if PTC's power, Microsoft's platform, Autodesk's business model. Hello, you know, just do that. Well, I want to make formula. a transition here, which maybe is a, a, a little bit sort of psychologizing it, but uh, you were on the MIT Blackjack team from 1984 to 1994, arguably the hardest years in industry, but you must have learned something there. And, you know, publicly the story is that you also made some money there that then went, in, went into the company you founded. If you reflect on this Blackjack experience in terms of what it taught you, um, was there some company strategy in there or was there some tactics? I mean, is it at all a stretch to say that some of the gamification that has become so popular these days, there's actually something to it. I mean, you were one of the first to take a game seriously, right? In, and the, later then become, you know, an, a big industrialist. You were on this team, which is, you know, written up in various books. And you guys were, you know, you, you had an understanding, obviously, of, of math and of systems. And you were applying it, you know, in a pretty curious sort of context. But then you took all that, the experience, the money, everything, and then you poured it into... SolidWorks. So goes the public story. What What is your version? Yeah, of that? so that is, the, the, by the way, I've read some of the things written on the internet or some, and some of the details are wrong, but the general story arc is correct. So I, I joined the Blackjack team when I was a grad student. I was working at the CAD lab. By the way, in a perfect storm situation, I ran into the people who I, I first learned of the Blackjack team the same month that the CAD lab was closed for a year for renovations. And my professor <laughs> Gossard went to Japan for a sabbatical. So it's like there's very little for me to do around the lab, so to speak. And and it's the coincidences of innovation. I'm a grad student at MIT. So um, Blackjack taught me a lot about that was very useful in entrepreneurship. One of the first things it taught me is that um, just because everyone says something is a bad idea, doesn't mean it really is a bad idea. So a lot of my friends said, Blackjack, I told them about it. They're like, oh, it's a scam. You can never win money. You know, my brother-in-law's uncle's dentist goes to Vegas all the time. And he says that, blah, 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 blah. You'll get, you know, you get kicked out. It, well, you know, it, it can't work. You're going to lose all, you know. It's just like all this naysayer stuff, you know, negative, negative, negative. There were very few friends of mine who said, oh, I think you'll win money in 30, 40 years from now. You have a great story to tell. <laughs> Nobody said that. You know, people were like, it wasn't seen as really so glamorous. It was like, oh, why are you doing that? You know, and, and I just was drawn to it. It was very interesting. I had a background as a magician before then. And so it was very interesting to me. And so, so, um, so the system works. So it taught me, first of all, a lot of people said no, and then the system worked. The other thing it taught me is not to, uh, not to draw too many conclusions from small sample sizes. Most hmm. people in business and in life, they don't understand how big a sample size you need to really draw a conclusion. They see a few, a few data points and they think that that makes, you know, makes a trend. And with blackjack, it teaches you that like, you know, yes, we make money. So if you start with a certain amount of money, you end with a lot more. If we played with our system for months, okay? Imagine a graph, okay? You start here and you end here. But the journey looks like this. 
you know, you see what I'm doing? If you can't, if you're only hearing me and not seeing it, it's a noisy It's a, imagine a lot of noise, like a stock graph from Wall Street. If you look at the Dow Jones over the last 20 years, there's some noise and big dips, but it generally heads up. That's what happened with blackjack. So most in business, people will see a person or a company do one or two things and, and think, oh, those things work. So the person must be brilliant or those things failed and the person must not be. And I kind of know that, that you can't draw too many conclusions. Someone can be playing the right strategy and still have what seems like a remarkable run of bad luck and vice versa. So that's a very useful lesson when it comes to It's interesting. I mean, I guess blackjack at the end of the day is very much, I mean, it's strategy, but it's also statistics. It's very advanced statistics. It's very actually. statistical. Exactly. It's very statistical. And the, probably the third thing I learned is I learned what it felt like to win. You know, and I think that you're not really a complete entrepreneur unless you've learned what it's like to feel a successful business, one that wins, and also learn what it's like to feel a tougher, unsuccessful business. And only those experiences really teach you what both feel like, you know, and if you've only felt one or the other, you're not really complete in your entrepreneurial palette yet, in my opinion. The so. fascinating thing for me is that you didn't only feel how it was to win and lose once, like you pointed out, you got a repeatable pattern and, yeah. and you got a, a system, you know, through it. So, all right, look, this, uh, fascinating stuff. So, so get, get me into SolidWorks. Let's, yeah. let's spend some time on SolidWorks. So, it's, okay. a, it's a good, it's a good story that I would say no one knows is too much. That's not right. But very few people know about SolidWorks compared to the people that know about an Apple or something else. And Oh, yeah. Uh, well, nor should they, because I would argue, you know, SolidWorks has not made the impact on the world that Apple has. You know, I, True, but, you know, we're talking yeah. about a massive industry and uh, it, yeah. it was a product. What, what was it when you conceived of it back in 93? What, so, what was it that you guys set out to do? It was really what it came to be. I want to say, you know, sometimes there are real pivots in strategy and, as you know, in startups, but that wasn't the case with SolidWorks. The product was pretty much exactly as I had envisioned it. Like I just said to you, it was something that had the power of pro engineer, of 3D modeling, okay, that ran like Word on a PC that had the UI of Microsoft. Now, did we make some some changes and improvements in the paradigm? We did. Could I get into a CAD technology discussion and discuss things like, you know, allowing partially constrained sketches versus fully constrained sketches? We innovated in UI with a concept called the feature manager, which we patented, which today is part of all systems, really. You know, things things like that. But fundamentally, you know, this the simple version of the story is it was. 3D, the high-end systems 3D power put into a word like software offering, sold like Autodesk, thousands of dollars. What we did evolve a lot from day one was the business model, the pricing and how we distribute. So I start my home in Winchester in 1993-ish, okay, I'm, I, and I start building this thing with, and I start recruiting friends of mine to do it with me. No, no payment. I can't pay them. And I'm, I'm living on my savings from Blackjack. And we do that for a year, building a prototype. And I can't raise venture capital. I try to raise venture capital. I go to the people who invest in my first company. Yeah, not interested. I go to other VCs and they're like, wait a minute, you're competing with PTC? Yeah, we are. 
well, PTC is like the most successful company in the U.S. right now. Well, but let me tell you about the future and, you know, run on Windows and get out of my office. You know, it's like, I don't want you Was know. there even an industrial tech VC environment to go to? Well, or were you just going to the, play, pitching the plain Silicon Valley VCs? No, no. Well, first of all, we were pitching to Boston VCs. Yeah. Um, even though in my first company, we had raised money from Kleiner Perkins. By the way, a little sidebar, my first company, I went to California, I sat in the round conference room at Kleiner Perkins and presented to Frank Caulfield and Brooke Byers and John Doerr and Vinod Kosla. And as I say, can I use profanity on your podcast? No, I'll just, I won't. I'll just say I presented to Regis McKenna, who I remember came back and told my friends, Regis effing McKenna. I mean that out of praise and, you know, respect, not, you know, like you won't effing believe who I effing presented to. It was Regis effing <laughs> McKenna. Brooke Byers, Frank Caulfield of Kleiner, it used to be Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield and Byers. And I know, Vinod that was the Kosla, ultimate pitch. Coastal Ventures days. and John Doerr, who's like, you know, the the Babe Ruth of venture capital, you know yeah. what I mean? So like, like that's just a sidebar. So I call these guys back. They don't want anything to do with me, you know, because my first company wasn't a big success. And when people in Boston, I go all around these Boston VCs, like a dozen of them, and some of them don't literally don't let me finish the presentation. I'm not going to name names, but, and another one gets really close and is really excited about investing. And then he says, no, we discovered this other company called CADKey. And I told you, CADKey was a decent company, but they weren't doing what we were doing. So it's really hard to raise venture, but I stick with it. I have my blackjack money. I convince these co-founders to work. And eventually we get venture people to put money in. Um, and we go and build our product and we just start selling a ton of it. You know, like way more like like the who did you, you convince? Know. I'm just um, curious. Who so we ended up convince? getting money from what happened was Atlas Ventures, Axel Bishara, who is today a big time VC and head of Bolt, which is a leading venture capitalist in the industrial and, and physical product space. I shouldn't say industrial, I should say they, they work with a lot of companies involved in physical products. And Axel was a young VC. He was my co-founder at my first company back at the MIT CAD lab and everything. He's this young VC at Atlas. His partners say, he tells me later, his partners say, why are you wasting time with that guy, Hirschdick? But he spends time with me. He eventually introduces me to a co-founder of PTC who had left named Mike Payne. And once we get Mike Payne on board, then, then investors start listening. Not because the software is any different. The software is exactly the same. But you have this guy who was a co-founder of PTC, says, this is a good idea, and I'm working on it. Oh, okay. Very interesting now. So we get Atlas, Burr Egan Deliage, which turned into Polaris. Okay, John Flint, if you know him. And Northbridge, you know Northbridge? Big, big, very successful venture fund. Rich Damore at Northbridge. But Rich is like founding Northbridge. He doesn't even have an office yet. I like, you know, I remember meeting Rich. And so those guys invested and they they got what we were doing. And one of the three of them finally said, I'm in, called me up and said, I remember this meeting we had. If you're I don't want to spend too much, you know. We went for this one meeting with one of the VCs and we and I instructed my co-founder, Scott Harris, wonderful co-founder. He was doing the demo. And this demo you had to click in exactly the right places or the thing would crash, okay? He was, I said, Scott, I want you to keep the demo rolling. No matter what happens, keep the film rolling. Don't stop. 
Okay, keep the visuals rolling. So we go into the meeting room with one of the VCs, and he's in like he comes in like forty minutes late. Oh yeah, you're that deal that my friend said I had to look at. All right, what do you got? And he's like, I don't know, he, you know, he's just like distracted or reading something or whatever. And we're like, yeah, 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 you know. And, and I'm like, See, we're going to show you a demo. And, and you know, and then there was just just this moment where he like looked up and he goes, wait a second, wait, wait, you're actually running that on a PC? I go, yeah, yeah. It's in Windows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, and no one else says anything like this? No, 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 no. And, 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 it's running on a PC and it really is. Yeah, 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 it is. So we have this prototype of the 3D modeling. And he looks over at Mike Payne and goes, and you were a founder of PTC? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you built Windows? Yeah. He goes, all right, I'm in. <laughs> you know, like it, just, it just shifted in a moment. Like I said about the market, he goes, I like this deal. I'm in. And he calls me the next day and he says to me, I'm in. If you get the other guys, so you need what you need when you raise venture capital is, is you need someone who's in who gives you a term sheet. When I advise people come to me and say, oh, I'm talking, I get these stories all the time. I'm talking to three investors. And the first one is like, well, when you get a lead investor, second one's like, maybe the next round. And the third one is like, if you had someone with more experience on the team, and you know what I tell them? I say, you know what that is? That's three versions of no. <laughs> okay, There's a lot of ways to say no. That's all no. If anyone's really interested, get them to give you a term sheet. Say, if someone says, I'm really interested, say, great. Um, send me a term sheet, then they're interested. Otherwise, it's just no. Like VCs have all these ways of like giving you pseudo no's that stay sort of interested. And I love VCs. So anyway, that's the story. That's a long version, but you seem interested. So we raise our venture money, we build our product, and boom, the market just, it's like the entrepreneur's dream, you know, like, 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 in my pre, you know, like instead of trying to work really hard to find business to business, like finds us and we get all these orders and customers and then we grow the business. And, um, but uh, you told me that, you know, today or at least over the last 10 years, this agile methods have been, you know, all the rage. Yeah. But you were using, I mean, it wasn't just by magic that you found this product market fit, right? You had been using ways to listen to the market that are today called oh. agile. How, how did that work out throughout these 20 years? Because it's a, oh. You know, even if you had a fairly instant product market fit, surely the market was evolving. How how did you practice listening? You know, and and, and evolve the product. Well, I, I think it goes back to my training in engineering at MIT. Remember, I said I was in product design. So one of the, you might say, what What does product design have to do with listening? Well, I was lucky enough to get into a curriculum um, that today I think is much more the norm. Uh, but the curriculum at the time talked about product design starting by listening to the needs of the customer. So I was trained that before you build anything, you listen to the needs of the customer. You study the customer. This was Woody Flowers, may he rest in peace, one of the founders of First, very famous professor. And, and um, that listen to the customer training, you know, is still part of my DNA. And so we listened with SolidWorks. And then the story of SolidWorks so if I can, you know, it was really focused on the success of the customer and listening to them. Um, and, and so as SolidWorks continues, we sold it after four years to Dassault System, acquired us for $318 million in 1997. And I stayed at Dassault System running SolidWorks and then advising for 14 more years. So I stay 18 years and SolidWorks grows to be 
$600 million-ish dollar a year business within Dasso Systems. And we have hundreds of thousands of users and cool products being built and, you know, really a great ride. But I listen to customers' problems. Again, I'm going to use this customer listening to take into the next. And I visit customers and they like the software, but every time I visit a customer, I get all these nightmare stories about installations and hardware and service packs and license codes and license code servers and data management servers because people are trying to use it in teams in modern environments with this little thing called the internet connecting them. And, whoa, we never built it for that, you know? And so I saw those problems at SolidWorks. And at the same time, I saw what was happening in cloud web and mobile and, you know, light bulb off again, trying to, time to build something new. So what happened then? You you essentially discovered it was time to move to cloud because, you know, as we're like talking about this digital thread that you've been part of yeah. for 40 years, how was it basically customer discussion and discovery that the, where you sort of said, okay, this is the moment, this is the year, this is the, these are the few years where the CAD systems have to move to the cloud. And, and how was yeah. that transition? It must have been a little painful for the software. Oh, yeah. Well, it really was, it really was seeing two things come together. Okay. One was seeing all the problems the customers had and seeing them face to face, visiting customers. Okay. That I just outlined. And the other was seeing new technology look using things like Google Docs. And I was using it when, it, when the word processor was called Rightly and Google acquired it. I was a Rightly user and using, I was really fascinated with the potential cloud computing because not only was it going to solve customer problems, it was going to solve my problems. I hate, I hate extra work and it just seems so clean and elegant that I could use cloud solutions. And I saw what was happening with Google Docs and Salesforce and things like, I don't remember if Zendesk and Workday were around yet, NetSuite, you know, basically everything was going this way. And it wasn't just taking the old application saying, oh, well, we'll move the workload into the cloud or something. No, 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 no. It wasn't doing that. It was saying, we're going to rethink the whole app and the data and the tools live in one place in the cloud and everyone accesses it. And you get, you, you eliminate all this hardware crap and license codes and service packs you eliminate all the problems they have by design. You don't have different people on different versions of software because we all use the same instance. People don't have to worry about which hardware they have. And then the collaboration benefits are amazing. And that suits the needs of modern teams to be more agile and more innovative. And so all these, so what I said was, hey, we could solve all these problems, but we have to build a completely new system. Yeah. And that's what we did. And, and only we're the only ones who have done that, by the way. There's no one else in our industry who has built a completely new system from scratch based on cloud web and mobile, a SaaS system. They, they do partial stuff like, oh, we've got a cloud system too. Just download four gigabytes of software and copy files to and from our cloud servers. And that's not what we're doing. We think, but at this point, you were an experienced entrepreneur. This was yes. your third company you were yes. you're talking about. You were about to build Onshape. What uh, I mean, at this point, it's getting easier, right? Did you bring yeah. some of the old team along? Yeah, we, you you we, certainly we, had your scars. Yeah. It was it was easier. Yeah. Like they say in the Blues Brothers, we're, we're putting the band back together. So we got John McElhinney, Dave Corcoran, Scott Harris. Tommy Lee was a co-founder of Onshape. He was my supervisor in 81 when I did my first internship. He's a co-founder of, of Onshape, excuse me, and of SolidWorks. 
And then um, uh, Dr. Michael Lauer, uh, one of the smartest people I ever met. He was from the premise days. You know, so these are people we know each other 30 years. We're the only startup I know where the average age of the founders was 50. You know, so we're, by the way, everything interesting I've done in my life, people told me I was either too young or too old to do. I've never been the right <laughs> age for anything. Right. So well, what is the it. right age for anything, right? And then, <laughs> and then people told me when I said, oh, we're going to build this cloud-based CAD thing, you know, people are like, it's all the same stuff I heard with SolidWorks 30 years ago. It's like, oh, well, it, nobody uses that, and it's, it's not secure, and it's going to be too You still slow. heard that? I, this oh, is yeah. your third company. You're successful. They're like, yeah, okay, well, you he's, gotta, now you he's too old. He's got how, it all wrong. You, know, you got to realize how backwards um, people are in the CAD manufacturing community, community sometimes when it comes to computing. Again, this is a multi-billion dollar segment with zero other true cloud systems. Now, again, my competitors will all say they have cloud. I'll leave it to you to judge. They're not really cloud. They're sort of, they'll say, oh, we just have a thick client. <laughs> Your thick client is four gigabyte app. I don't really consider that a cloud app, but they do. We differ on that. You know? But anyway, we, we, we raise money very easily. We get the founding team together. It was a really hard product to build. And the industry thought we couldn't do it, but sorry, industry, we did it. We built a good system and we raised venture capital from uh, Northbridge and Commonwealth Capital and NEA, Harry Weller, may he rest in peace, fantastic investor, Andreessen Horowitz. And we go build this system and we go to market and sell it. And, and, today, and then... PTC comes along. So good old PTC, you know, the same company for these. And, and Jim Heppelman, the CEO, he sits down with us one day and says, look, I believe in the future of cloud and SaaS. I believe you're doing it right. Come join us and we'll make a bigger, better success. Much like what happened with SolidWorks and Dasso System. So PTC acquires us and we're now at PTC and we have uh, thousands of, of companies using Onshape to design everything you'd imagine, a lot of things you wouldn't. We, we just, our sales growth, by the way, commercial sales growth, PTC, I can only refer to PTC public financial statements. And their sure. most recent quarter, they announced their sales growth was over 70% year to year, which we believe is quite strong and probably the highest growth rate in the industry by a mile. And we have, um, a, we have over a million students and teachers using us in education. Almost all of that is free usage. But we're super proud of it, that we were able to help students and teachers teach CAD. And that market just just uh, flipped overnight to our way, you know, with hundreds of thousands of people moving to us from, you know, the other systems. Because in education, obvious, I don't even think I have to say well, all the reasons why we're the right system. So, And I'm still working on it. I'm still working harder. You know, on, on the future, and um, well, so the future because you know you've taken us from the '80s, which was yeah. uh, you know a, a tricky decade, but you know a lot of foundational work, and then it came the next two decades, and you you know founded a significant company that you know was transformative for the manufacturing and industrial space and and design space, and and then now with SolidWorks, we're we're into that was 2012 and until uh, uh, 2019, I guess, with the acquisition. No, no, it was it was. SolidWorks was 93 
Tron. I started almost 30 years. Yeah, I'm years sorry, ago. not SolidWorks. On Shape. Oh, on Shape. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> SolidWorks was 93. I'm sorry, to 2011. And then On Shape, 2012 till now, right? But 2012 was yeah. a conference room with nothing, with a notion. So we didn't really, yeah. you know, we didn't really get going until 2013 and, you know, and, and so forth. But, but yeah, but that's, that's not that's that long ago. But where are we now? So, you know, we're 20, yeah. 21, right? Um, where is. Where is the future? Where's the next step? So because think, uh, first of all, not not every uh, software in this space has moved from on-prem yet, right? So we're still in no. this hybrid reality where cloud, which to many seems like, oh, those were the days where that was new. It's still new in yeah. the industry. It's kind of sad, actually, but yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So one, how do you explain that it's still new? And number two, what is the next spin on? cloud or something else that's going to really transform uh, what, what you can do? So I think that that it's the story in our marketplace is one of, I call it like two sumo wrestlers battling it out, you know, is the analogy I'd use. For those of you who know what sumo wrestling are, you know, it's two giant wrestlers battling. In one corner, you have kind of the obviousness and inevitability of the benefits of cloud and web and mobile, which in any other industry is kind of old news. And if you go to the West Coast, it would be like asking if, you know, is color television better than black and white television or something? You know, it's like, what? Why are people, we're the last industry still talking about it. And then in, the, you know, so, so it's like this inevitable shift to cloud and the benefits it brings and cost savings, collaboration, agility, innovation, performance, and so forth. And then in the other corner, you have this giant entrenchment and inertia of manufacturing. And it's no joke that, you know, manufacturing is a really tough business. Hardware is hard. And so you have very high functionality requirements, you know, that, that in order to make real products, you have large amounts of data and processes invested in a set of tools like SolidWorks. And so to get that market to tip, to move is very hard. And justifiably hard. And if you're a customer, it's not easy to say, oh, I'm going to rip out my CAD system. By the way, all those attributes I just gave you about the entrenchment, it makes it very hard to get into that, that market, very hard to, to win it. But once you win it, you build a very durable, growing, profitable business, which is why there it's interesting um, businesses. And so, so we're trying to, you know, it's the battle of the, the sumo wrestlers is how I put it, you know, entrenchment versus cloud. And so, um, uh, uh, so what's going to happen in industry in my world, a few things are happening. One is we're going to be moving more and more to SaaS solutions. I think I've covered that, but more importantly, we're moving. What does that mean for industry for, I'm going to give a broader technical and a broader industry trend. Technically, um, we're moving more to a digital thread. And so I've been telling a story of CAD, but that's only part of the digital journey for manufacturing. So we're going to see, when I think of digital thread, the best way I'd summarize it is uh, a digital systems that encompass th sort of three everys. Every person is connected. Every asset physically is connected. Manufacturing equipment, products themselves connected. Every piece of data about them all those are the three everys, all in real time, you know, real time updating. Now that to me is digital thread. And what it does is it takes you beyond the generation of digital systems a lot of people have now are emulating paper workflows digitally. I mean, if you think about it, files and folders and email 
forwarding inboxes, those are all concepts borrowed from paper. <laughs> you know, like like we took the paper world and we comfort we comfort food gave us digital tools that emulate it. So we end up with these ideas of copying stuff around and putting your inbox. Even even the icon for for email is typically a paper envelope. So we're automating paper in the first digital generation of CAD and other tools. It's and fascinating that, you know, that you bring yeah. up this uh, this uh, story because uh, and this idea that we finally can move beyond paper. I mean, if this is really going to happen, um, the shifts could be much more drastic than than they were in the last thirty years of sort of like productivity software for for sort of desk workers, right? Yeah. If you really are now saying that the physical space, physical industry, you know, is close to some products and innovations that are going to move beyond just paper workflow. So, so tell me yeah. about what, what, what some of those systems look like, uh, which ones uh, matter. I mean, in other circles, right, they use terms like industry for technologies yeah. or industry smart manufacturing. Smart I mean, manufacturing, do, yeah. some, this is part of that complex. Yeah. And so what we're going to see is, and we're seeing it today with a lot of other companies are talking about this. It's not just CAD. It's connecting the the factory floor. So we have a number of companies and technologies that are connecting the equipment on the factory floor. So instead of getting out of date, you know, copies of spreadsheets, which again is saying, well, we'll just do what we did on paper, but we'll do it electronically. Big deal. Instead, what they're doing is connecting in real time. So you have a two-way digital connection between the equipment on the factory floor and not just the equipment, but the worker. Okay. Mm-hmm. The worker on the factory floor, the equipment on the factory floor. And then everyone who has a stake in it, management, peers and other factory locations, new factories coming online. And we give people data, insights, training that they could never get otherwise. And this is where some other technologies come in. IoT, at the, you know, is a sense connecting that kind of um, flow at the lowest level. And augmented reality becomes very important. And there's a lot of definitions of augmented reality, but to me, if we're going to give the frontline manufacturing worker, if we're going to connect them, every one of them, came back to my every's here of digital thread, if every worker is going to be connected, they're not going to be connected the way you and I are now at desktop computers with big monitors seated in chairs. We need to give them information that they can work with. So a, a, um, a, a, uh, a, a, a AR headset can put digital information superimposed into their world of, of assembly or of service. And that's super exciting um, in terms of how they I'm, get I'm interested there. in the yeah. form factors that this is going to take for you because you have seen so many transitions. Form factor is really important when, when you're dealing with yeah, a physical is. workspace. Well, we haven't seen the, the real tipping point devices of AR, but we're seeing a lot of AR. And I consider augmented reality to not just be your traditional headsets, and by the way, I don't mean virtual reality because virtual reality, I don't think, has much to do with the frontline worker. You know, virtual, you're in a full virtual environment. The, that's the last thing you want in a factory is to take someone away from. So in a factory, people need to be alert to what's happening around them or in a service situation. You go out to service a, a diesel generator for electricity and it costs a lot of money in downtime. The worker can come out and have a headset and the headset 
that they're wearing. And it could be glasses. It could be a headset. It could be maybe a tablet computer that augments. It could be physical. I would include in this physical hardware that goes on the devices that might give them information. Like, like for instance, they might walk, might walk up and an LED might light up near a valve. That LED could be in their headset, you know, that they see it virtually augmented reality style, or it could be physical and it lights up because it, it, there's an IOT system that says, okay, unit number 3172A is being serviced by this technician. Um, I know he's an entry level technician. I'm going to walk him through the steps very carefully. Um, we had an expert record a series of steps on how to do this service operation. We can replay that with augmented instructional aids, but those instructional aids aren't a PDF file on a MacBook. They're instructional aids in, situated in the physical world that show them where to go and what to do. There's also a social dimension to this because the frontline workers are a more diverse population. And if we're going to bring them into the digital thread reality, we can't wait for the next generation to get the benefits of education and so forth. We have to bring them in now, and this is a way to do it. Yeah, there's a major skills challenge there for sure. Can you comment yeah. on on how Tulip's sort of frontline operations platform fits into this picture from from where you see it? Because you sort of you've seen, as we have traced both the the past, present, and 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 into the future. Where where does uh, a product like a Tulip, which you know started out being sort of conceptualized more like a manufacturing execution system, but clearly has some elements of sort of no code and, and a little bit of the elements yeah. you're talking about here, which doesn't assume so much expertise, I guess, on, well, on the I, part I, of yeah. the workers. And what I, I think I'm excited about Tulip because it's, it's an example of exactly the type of system I'm talking about where it's a digital thread kind of thought, you know, a piece of a digital thread that, that connects. It's basically empowering, I see it as empowering the worker with digital augmentation to their work, okay, and empowering all the other people connect who have an interest, who have a stake in how that manufacturing line is running with the data they need connected really in real time. So the manager, this is how I see it. I'm no expert, but yes, my opinion. So I see it as totally consistent with a industry 4.0 digital thread kind of strategy um, that would that would allow it to... to um, it's one of those kinds of systems that that is looking forward to to helping looking forward that is forward looking I should say in helping helping uh, use digital technology to really improve how manufacturing works for the worker and all the other stakeholders through a, a, a digital platform. I wanted to close just by asking you a super simple question. You know, if you look another decade in, yeah. So we have been talking in decades. So yeah. now we're in, I arguably, yeah. you know, in, in one decade, and that's perhaps the decade of these digital threads spreading out, uh, you know, fully into SaaS maybe, and, 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 you know, some amount of augmentation going on and hopefully spreading a little bit across this diverse worker population that, that you say, right, to really get the benefits to sort of percolate. But what, what is next after that has been done, which obviously could take more than 10 years. I yeah. do not know, but what's next after that? So I think, I think 10 years from now, you know, the idea of, of, of digital thread will be the norm. And if someone says, I'm going to copy some data and forward it to you, they literally won't know what you mean by that. 
<laughs> you know, they literally won't know. Like, by the way, when you watch The Next Generation, one of my teenagers, when they were about 14, 15, I had said to them, oh, you got that message? Just forward it to your teacher with the information. They're like, what's forwarding? They, they, they live their life in text messages. They've used email so little. It's like asking them to, to buy postage stamps. They, they just don't quite understand email. Serious. I know for us, it seems odd. So I think a decade from now, we'll, we won't be, you know, we won't be dealing with installed software and files and stuff so much. We'll be expecting real time digital connections, whether it's with, with each other like this or with data in a system like an Onshape or, or uh, an IOT system or a Tulip or something. I think what will happen as a result, a few other things that are going on. One is we're going to see processes evolve because with those tools, people can be much more agile and innovative than they could be in the old world. So agile design is going to come to manufacturing the way it's come to software in a big way. And you're going to see, you're going to see teams working in much tighter cycles and more of them because that makes a higher performing system. By the way, just like if you want to control a high performance missile or aircraft, you sample frequently and, and adjust course frequently, and that brings you to target. And the same will happen with product development. Another thing we'll start to see, excuse me, is more and more, of course, computer assistance based on all that data. So we're starting to see that with generative design. We'll see the computer saying, hey, I've got a way to, to look at your manufacturing line and reorganize it. I've got a way to redesign that part to save a little weight. Okay. And that will come in. And because we're when we have a digital thread, the computer is connected in real time too. And not just a computer. The idea of using a computer would be will be in the future a ridiculous idea because it'll all be cloud-based. No one will even understand that. In the future, people say, um, People will be asking, oh, you have software that runs on one computer? How could that be fast enough? Okay. Anyway, the other thing, so we'll see, we'll see a lot more, a lot more computing power brought to bear on these problems through AI or machine learning, whatever you want to call it. We'll see more hardware devices coming in because once you're on a digital thread or a SaaS-based system, new hardware can enter more easily. And so we'll see as we're seeing now, look, I'm using my watch and I get notifications on here and that's cool. And I do believe we'll see more people building things that you'd call AR devices. Um, I also think we'll see things in geometric modeling change. We'll see because of the emergence of, of more 3D printing and generative design, we're going to see um, geometric representations, the scale of technical in my field that are more... Um, are more uh, uh, are, are of a different variety, let's just say, without getting into the details so much. And we may see new systems. I got to say, at some point, we may see systems that I can't dream of, and I hope we do. Well, yeah. on that note, I was going to give you an unfair last question to answer, oh, sure. which is next time you come on a podcast, whether it is you know if just a few months from now, a few years from now, or indeed a decade from now, will, will you have grown a beard and sort of look back at the industry? Or will you have been in another boardroom and in another VC meeting to pitch the next <sighs> big thing? Well, I don't, I, I don't think I'll be doing either. I have no plans to regrow my beard. Um, and right now, I have to say, I'm very happy where I am. PTC has been a great place for us to, you know, take on shape to the next level. We also have introduced something called the Atlas platform that I'm also responsible for, for an array of digital manufacturing 
and augmented reality applications that we'll be building and product lifecycle management on top of it, which is really cool. Um, and uh, I'm really happy doing that. And so I'm kind of hoping that this is my last career step, you know, like, like, you know, to me, um, you know, I've been married before twice in my personal life. I'm married now, very happily married, but it was my second marriage. You know, I don't want to have a third marriage. I don't want to have a third company. I like, you know, our fourth company or whatever. I like where I am business wise. And so I hope to stay here, but you never know in the future. You never know, but I'm pretty happy. And I feel I have a lot more good work to do for my customers right here where I am. So, well, that's that's wonderful. Well, certainly, I thank you for for painting or or describing. I don't know what the metaphor is. This digital thread throughout these uh, decades for us, and uh, I wanted to say that you know whatever you do, you're welcome back here. Uh, I I certainly think it would be another hour. Maybe we can have <laughs> you on to discuss innovation inside of a big corporation because oh, specifically yeah. in manufacturing, that that must be. You know, it, it is a completely different animal, I guess, and you have you have experienced both because you have sold to these corporations. So, so I'd I'd love if you would uh, come back. Maybe we'll have a broader panel, oh. uh, and I'd love to come come and discuss this this sort of like back and forth, I guess, between startup innovation and large company innovation, and you sort of need both to propel the industry forward. Well, I'd be honored, uh, Tron. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me, and thanks for the the content you're getting out to the audience. I think it's great. It's a great topic and uh, I'm delighted to be part of it now and maybe again in the future. Who knows? Well, thank you so much, John. It's been a pleasure speaking with such a legend. You have just listened to episode 23 of the Augmented Podcast with host Ronan Enheim. The topic was digital manufacturing with CAD-CAM in the cloud. Our guest was John Herstuck head of SaaS, Onshape, and Atlas platform at PTC. In this conversation, we talked about the story of SolidWorks, using agile methods, listening to the market, charting the evolution of CAD into SaaS, and its emerging and future iterations in the open source cloud and beyond. My takeaway is that digital manufacturing is moving to the cloud, and that means a whole lot more than office software moving to the cloud. In fact, establishing a real-time digital thread through next-generation low-code and no-code systems will reshape industry. The notion of factory production, distributed teams, product development will all evolve significantly and will enable personalization across industry and across any and eventually all of manufactured goods. The ramifications will be huge, but they won't automatically happen tomorrow, and the benefits will spread unevenly depending on who, be it corporations, nations, startups, or small and medium enterprises, grabs the gauntlet first. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 43, Digitized Supply Chain, episode 24, Emerging Interfaces for Human Augmentation, or episode 21, The Future of Digital in Manufacturing. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter to everyone.